You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So we kind of did the introduction to the book of James last week, and we got through verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And that's where we stopped. Um, Let's go a little further this morning. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to expect that he won't receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is it that James is driving at here? What are, what are some of the ways we can break this down? And I think what we could do, one approach we could take is just to take those six, seven verses, and there's five aspects of, or five points about what mature suffering looks like. We talked last week about how the book of James is really about what, it, what does it mean to be spiritually mature? What does a mature Christian look like? And part of how God wants to grow us is in our understanding and in our attitude towards trials, towards things that happen Because we live in a fallen world where difficulties arise and pain occurs, and a mature Christian is going to be able to adopt a certain attitude towards those things. And so he begins and he says, consider it all joy. This idea of considering, what does it mean to consider? You know, we kind of look at it as ponder, Uh, The idea of like, you know, we're just going to look at it this way, that we're just going to consider it joy. Like something bad happens and we're like, joy, that's joy. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about some kind of, you know, super spiritual new age, you know, if you want it to be something bad enough, you can turn it into that. That's not what he's talking about here. The word consider in Greek, which is the original language of of this letter, is Hegomi. And what it means is it's a mathematical term. It means to reckon. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot. You know, we associate it with cowboys and westerns. But to reckon something is sort of to calculate. It's to think about and it's to, you know, to solve an equation, right? And that's really something that we do face as Christians when we face trials. It's an equation. We're saying, what? Am I supposed to think about this in terms of for myself, for my family? How does God play into this? There's an equation here that I need to understand. And James says that is exactly correct. A trial represents a problem that needs to be solved. And what he does is he gives us guidelines for solving that problem. So when we reckon various trials, you know, what we tend to do is say, why me? That's probably the most natural opening response. Why me? God, 
I'm trying to serve you. I know that I'm not perfect, but I'm not a terrible person. And I look around and I see people who are much worse than I am doing all kinds of things and they're not suffering. Why am I suffering in the midst of this? And maybe I'm even suffering because I tried to do the right thing, which in many cases others wouldn't have. Why do I have to suffer? Why me? Or my personal favorite, woe is me. (laughs) Just being like, why does this always happen to me? Can I get a break? Can somebody else, can it be somebody else's turn to suffer for a little while? You know, this sort of self-pity, this approach of, you know, oh, I'm the victim, and oh, I just have it so hard, and nobody understands how, what it's like to be me, and nobody can, can relate. I am all alone. When we reckon our trials, we often say, this is unfair. I don't deserve. We like that word. We like to say and think about what we deserve, right? Because we have this view of ourselves that what we deserve is good things. And so when we get bad things, an injustice is occurring. And what James is saying here is, is that's the wrong equation. That's the wrong way to reckon, to consider, to calculate. He's saying when trials come recognize that they are an opportunity for growth. That a mature Christian will see a trial and say, well, it looks like I'm in a growing season. And that there can even be a sense of anticipation and excitement. Not that we like pain, but that we're eager to grow. We're eager to be tested in our faith because we want to be more faithful. And that when we see an equation of a trial, what James is saying is, consider it all joy. Think about your attitude towards suffering because the key to growing from suffering starts with your attitude, your ability to reckon, to equate, and understand The opportunity that lies in front of you. A trial is something where you're going to be able to learn maybe lots of things. Maybe you're going to be able to learn what it was like for other people to go through something that you've never been through before. Maybe you're going to learn what it's like to be able to help people who will go through what you're going through later. Maybe you're going to learn greater dependence on God. Maybe you're going to learn aspects of yourself where you are weak and you didn't know. Or maybe you're going to learn aspects about your strengths that were not apparent to you before. Trials are an opportunity to grow and to be strengthened. And our attitude towards them has a lot to do with the effects that the trials will ultimately have for God's purposes. So he says, reckon it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials. Notice what he doesn't say is if you encounter trials. It's a foregone conclusion that we live in a fallen world where stuff is messed up. And he's not even talking specifically necessarily about persecution. He's talking about 
getting sick. He's talking about a tree fell on your car. He's talking about being treated unjustly at work. He's talking about your kid's rebellion. He's talking about all of it. And there is no promise anywhere in the Bible that we are exempt from these things. This is the reality of living in a world that has thrown off the leadership of God and gone its own way. That we are vulnerable to the wicked decisions of other people. That their decisions impact us. That we are vulnerable and accountable for the wicked decisions that we make and the consequences of those things. And that we are vulnerable to a fallen world, a a biosphere where things are not the way that God designed them to be. Creation itself, the Bible tells us, groans waiting for God to come and set things right. And so we live in chaos. And God says it's a chaos of our making. The question then is, when we suffer, what will be our attitude, our approach, and our understanding of what that suffering represents? These trials he's talking about can come from every corner of life. And he says, consider it all joy. The joy comes not from the trial but understanding what the trials can produce. That there's an attitude and a sense here of, okay, I'm going to find out how mature I am. I'm going to find out how sincere my faith is, and I'm going to find out what it's like to have those put to the test. I have the opportunity here to grow, and while I don't enjoy suffering, I do enjoy the idea that I could grow as a person And have opportunities to be used in a greater way for God's purposes. And he says this, consider it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This is how you get tougher spiritually. This is how you learn to hang on. And you have to know this, that the joy that's involved in facing trials is connected to the knowledge that it is an opportunity for growth. In football, we used to call it having a lot of heart. And you really liked having guys around that had a lot of heart. You know, I, I uh, was, a, was, I was a pretty good high school football player, but I was a great junior high football player. <laughs> I grew early and fast. And uh, in, in seventh grade, I was like six feet tall and like 200 pounds. And so I loved football because I was playing against people that were probably 130, 140 pounds. And it was so much fun. And we had a practice at at, at the end of the week. Games were on Thursday. There was a practice on Friday. And at the end of the week, there was a one-on-one drill at the end of practice that the coach would have us play. And this was, I love this, because it was you versus one other person, and he would say hike, and then you would hit each other as hard as you possibly could until one person fell down. And I was really good at it. (laughs) (laughs) 
just because biology, that's it. And I had a reputation as being a hard hitter. And uh, there was an incident once early in the season where I broke my teammate's arm. Just a little bit. I know you're feeling terrible for me, right? Because I do too. I was devastated. It was, it was actually a painful experience. But the result of that was no one wanted to be my partner anymore. And uh, the coach who caught on to that, seeing an opportunity, seized it and decided that being my partner was an appropriate punishment for people who had performed poorly. <laughs> Helping my reputation greatly among my teammates. And so, you know, if you missed an assignment in a game, you were Lowry's partner for the one-on-one -on -one drills, or if you mouthed off to the coach, you were Lowry's partner for the one-on-one. -on Basically, what I'm saying is, is I became a goon for the coach. <laughs> Not proud. But what happened was, there was one guy, his name was Seth. And Seth was about 125 pounds, and he was not a starter. And every week, he volunteered to be my partner. Now, when you're a big guy, this puts you on the horns of a dilemma. When you're 200 pounds and a 125-pound teammate challenges you, it's a lose-lose situation. Because if you hurt him or go too hard, then you're just a terrible person. But if he beats you, then you're Goliath. You're the big guy that fell to the little guy, and that could, last, well, that could go all the way through high school. And so you feel like, I don't want to hurt this person, but I also cannot lose to this person. And he would go up, and I, at, in seventh grade, opted for the, I'm going to go all out, in the hopes that he will no longer volunteer and put me in this situation. Uh, that was how selfish I was. So I went after him as hard as I could. Uh, it was not pretty, uh, but he was not hurt. And the next week he was back again and again and again. And uh, I began to realize that what he was doing was each week he was pondering a new approach. He had spent time thinking about what could he try different to sort of probe me for weaknesses that could be exploited. And I approached him and I was like, dude, why do you keep volunteering? And he was like, this is the best way for me to get better. And I just really respected that. I didn't like it, but I respected it from the standpoint of he was brave and he wanted to get better. And in that case, I represented sort of the trial, but as time went on, and every week he volunteered, he did get better, and he became a starter on our team, and more than once during that season, he knocked me on my butt. He was tricky. He was fast. <laughs> but that process that he willingly went into, he looked at something that everybody else was seeing as something that could be avoided, and he saw it, he reckoned it. And he joyfully volunteered because he wanted to grow. And, you know, if I had had that kind of heart, I don't know what would have happened to my athletics career. I had ability, but I didn't have that kind of heart. And I think, you know, what God is saying here, what James is saying through God is what he wants is he wants his followers to have heart. He wants us to be eager for the opportunity to grow. 
He wants us to, to look at challenges and yes, they're scary and yes, they could be painful, but they are great opportunities to grow in ways that we may not otherwise be able to grow. So we should consider it all joy when we face various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. That's the picture that James is painting in terms of what is the right attitude of a mature Christian towards these kinds of trials, knowing you will grow as a result. We should think about that. And we can, if, we, if we reflect for just a moment, we can say, okay, what events brought about your greatest growth as a person? Were those fun things? Or were those largely painful things? Are the things that have defined who you are and brought about the most change in your life, were they easy or were they painful? You can look back and you could say, I feel like I've grown the most, typically from the most painful things. And you can ask that question, would you willingly choose that kind of pain? And most of us are saying, and we would say, no. I may be glad it happened, but I would not want to choose into those painful, you know, given the choice to experience those things or not experience those things, I will choose not because it hurts. But then there's a paradox for most of us because when we ask, okay, so that thing that made you grow so much and was so painful, would you undo it now that you're on the other side? If you could get in a time machine and go back and stop that pain and that event and forfeit that growth, would you do that? And most people will say, no, absolutely not. I'm on the other side now and I'm, I'm glad for the strength that I've found through those trials. I don't want to experience them again, but I'm glad I experienced them and I'm glad they're in the past and I am now in the future or the present and I'm enjoying the fruit that was produced by that pain without regret. And what James is saying is is that this is the truth that we need to hold in mind when we face these various trials. It's not about seeking or manufacturing suffering. That's called asceticism, where we decide, you know, I need to grow spiritually, so I'm going to throw myself down a flight of stairs. That was the wisdom of the Middle Ages, where they didn't understand what it meant to trust in God and that the world will have plenty of trials on its own. So that's not a godly way to approach a trial. But neither is running away, neither is hiding, and neither is avoiding all pain at all cost. There's also nothing wrong with avoiding unnecessary suffering. Listen, uh, if you can morally and easily swerve out of the way when pain is coming, I think that's right and good. But the point that I think James would want us to understand is it's not about Avoiding suffering being bad, it's about when suffering comes and it's unavoidable within a moral framework, it's clear that we have a trial to face. Do we have a category? Do we have an attitude of here comes opportunity? It's going to be hard, but I'll be looking back at this in the rearview mirror, glad that it happened and benefiting from the strength 
that has been found because of that trial. And if we can come to that realization up front, at the beginning, that prepares us to suffer in victory. Now, you can definitely suffer and gain nothing from it. That's actually what God is trying to teach us to avoid, is don't suffer for no reason. The choices in life are not to suffer or not to suffer. That's not a choice. We don't get to make that choice. We live in a fallen, broken world. The choice is to suffer and grow or suffer and not grow. Those are the two choices that are presented. And as our loving Father, He doesn't want us to suffer for nothing. And our author then says, consider it all joy, knowing that your suffering produces endurance. And let that endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. You have to endure. You have to, you have to stay the course. You have to not quit. Enduring a trial means seeing it through to completion, not taking shortcuts, not taking immoral choices to avoid pain and suffering, not quitting and not seeking comfort from harmful sources. Many of us love to do this. We're in pain, we're suffering, we're in a trial, and we decide alcohol is the way to ease that pain, or entertainment, or doubling down at work, we tend to want to avoid those things that need to be dealt with in faith. Rather than turning to God in prayer, rather than sharing with the people in our lives the pain that we're going through, rather than turning to the scriptures for comfort and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us, rather than asking others for help, a lot of us will do anything and everything that we can to avoid and to just make the pain stop. And when we do that, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to grow, and we doom ourselves to repeat the same mistakes because we don't grow. So there is always an opportunity to grow in a way that God can use the trials that we face for good. But we don't always see those things. We don't always, they're not always readily apparent. In fact, a lot of times we're like, you know, God says that he works all things to good for those who love him. Uh, I'm really struggling to see that right now. And James anticipates that. He understands that as one who has been through this process. And what he says is, it's okay to ask. In fact, we should ask. As you suffer, And as you strive to consider it all joy, knowing that your trials will produce endurance, but if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. It's okay to turn to God and say, your word says that I could benefit and learn and grow from suffering, but I'm not seeing it here. I'm very upset. I'm very hurt. I'm feeling very tempted to shake my fist at you. Like Job says, curse God and die. I'm so mad I could curse God and die. And James says, how about instead of that, you turn to God and you say, 
help me understand what's happening. Help me to see where you can work in the midst of this tumult and this pain and this horror that I am facing. I believe, I trust that there's something good that can come of this. God, will you show me what that is that we should ask? And the thing that we need to understand is that there is absolutely nothing wrong with asking God questions. God loves our questions because God is the God of answers. It's terribly frustrating to have all the answers and never be asked any questions. I'm told. My wife tells me that all the time. God is not afraid of our questions. Because he knows that honest questions, meaningful questions, lead to truth, and God is the God of truth. And he's not offended by our lack of understanding. He wants us to grow. He wants us to gain knowledge, and he wants to share his knowledge with us. And so asking in faith is highly commendable. Read the Psalms, and you'll find the people who God has preserved Their prayers for us to observe and to read are always asking honest questions. God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? Are you really good? And when's it going to stop? And God says, that's the right way to pray when you're in the midst of a trial. We must forfeit the idea that God is somehow offended. God, why would you let me suffer? And God is like, oh. You would dare ask me that? Here we have scripture saying, no, that's exactly the right thing to do. God, why? Help me see. Help me understand. Give me a vision, O Lord, of how anything good can come out of the pain that I'm feeling right now. And God says, that is a totally appropriate thing. What's inappropriate is using doubt as an excuse to not get answers, to be intellectually dishonest and approach God without even wanting or being interested in the answer, but using our doubts and using our fears and saying, any God like you who would allow me to go through this, I reject. You have nothing to offer me. God says, when you take that approach, you should expect no answer. Because what I'm looking for is willing hearts. And so James says in verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That when you're in that moment and you're in that trial and you don't really want to know God's answer, and you're being buffeted and you feel torn and you are all on your own because you are refusing to humble yourself and say, I can't do this on my own. God, I need your help. God's answer is silence. Because like a drowning person, he is waiting for you to exhaust yourself to answer these things by your own effort so that you will turn to him saying, I don't have the answers. And God says, that I can work with. That's somebody 
who I can move toward. They're ready. You must trust that there is a reason. There is a way forward. And God is eager to share that answer with you in his timing. Sometimes we suffer and the trial ends and we feel like, I don't even know. I still don't know why that was good. And it wouldn't be for many years later that we meet somebody who we're ministering to that's been through something similar and then we find then that there's an opportunity. It can be very difficult and it can be very long and it requires our patience. But we can be assured that God can and will show us the good that can come about from our trials. And if we don't know that, if we don't believe that, we cannot and we will not endure to the end. That's the author's point. He says, endure so that you can reap the goodness of what God has for you. But if you quit, you'll never find out. You'll never know. You'll come around with a very corrupted data set in your reckoning, and you'll conclude either God is not good, or God is not real, or God does not care. And you have just suffered for no reason, with no benefit. And that is why James is so adamant to his audience. If you want to be a mature Christian, if you want to grow, then you have to be eagerly looking. You have to have heart. And when those opportunities come, you have to trust. And you have to ask. And the last point, you have to believe. You have to trust that God's answers will come. He says, without faith, we're like a helpless person tossed to and fro by the sea. And without that, that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you're lurching back and forth in desperation and bitterness and challenging God rather than approaching God in faith and humility, you should not expect an answer. Because God is trying to bring us to the point where we realize we cannot do it on our own. And so he says, we have to believe. We need to be willing to follow even if we don't like the answer. Sometimes we ask God, why am I suffering in this way? The answer becomes apparent, and we're like, bad call, God. (laughs) Any idiot could see that that wasn't going to work out. Instead of saying, it's hard to see how that's going to work out, but I trust and I believe that you are good, and that because I don't understand this now doesn't mean that I won't appreciate it later. I trust you, God, that you are in control, that you are sovereign, and that if you have allowed this to come into my life, it is because it can be used for your good and for my good. And even if I don't understand it right now, and even if the answer seems apparent, and by my calculations, it's not worth it, you are God, 
And you know better than I do. And I trust that. Also, for a mature Christian who's been through this, it really helps. It really helps when you've actually experienced these truths in action. When you can look back over your life and you can say, I have really suffered and I have really wondered and I have really cried out to God and I know that he has come through in the past. I believe that he's going to come through in the future. I don't mean at all to say that as you mature spiritually, trials become less painful. No. It's not that you become more thick-skinned and somehow magically it hurts less. No, that's not what this is saying. This is just saying that you learn to trust more because you've seen the effect of trust in the past. And even when it hurts more, you calculate, you consider, you reckon, God has never let me down in the past. And as difficult and maybe even as impossible as it is in this moment to see and believe that what God is doing is good, I trust him because of his track record. I believe. Paul had experience with this. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, To keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me. We don't know what this is. Did he have a bad back? A thorn in the flesh would seem to be, you know, some kind of physical ailment that was causing him great pain and seemed to him to be interfering with his ability to do God's work. He saw it as a manifestation of the enemy of God trying to discourage him and keep him from moving forward. And he said, God, will you take this from me? Three times, he says, I ask, God, can you heal me? Can you, can you take this and, and make it right? And he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, James and Paul agree. Trials are opportunities for growth and strength, and they are men who have been through it and can demonstrate to us. We today are benefiting from Paul's suffering 2,000 years ago because it perfected in him an understanding of God's goodness and gives us a vision, a template for our suffering and a hope that we can be used. You see, it's hope that is the ultimate rubric for understanding suffering. We suffer now, and when we suffer, the thing that we cannot lose, that we must not allow to escape us, is the hope that it will end. The hope that God will use it. 
The belief that as bad as it is and as long as it goes, it will not go forever. And in the end, it will be worth it. We don't know how. We don't understand in what way. But we know that God is good and God is powerful. And it will end in victory. The best example I could think of is a mother giving birth. Have you ever seen that? It's insane. And yet, women choose into that over and over and over again, much to the male's astonishment. Uh, Trust me, we would be like, no. I'm not doing that once, let alone two, three, whatever numbers of times. When my son was born, uh, my wife needed to be induced early. She was getting an ultrasound in uh, the eighth month, and the nurse doing the ultrasound went, ooh. And I was like, what, what, what? And they were like, his head is getting really big. And I was like, hmm. Who in your family is the fault for this, Jess? (laughs) The Lowry's are like bulldogs. We have to be (laughs) C-sectioned. Medical science is necessary. And they literally had to induce her early because of the size of my son's square head. And so we went in and uh, it was, you know, she was induced and labor started, but she was in labor for 16 hours. And uh, her blood pressure was dropping and Logan, our son, who had not yet been born, his blood pressure was dropping. And all of a sudden, all these alarm bells went off and it was like, your wife and your baby could die. And they rushed us into this emergency room and with these bright lights and they strapped her to a table out like this. And I'm just thinking about Braveheart at this point. <laughs> and they, and you know, there was no time, like, I was there holding her hand in a paper outfit. You know, she, she had been so, this is, this is so true. She had been throwing up and I had been holding a bucket. And then she was like, literally, like, have you seen the movie Aliens? Where they wake up and they're like, kill me. Like, she said that to me that way and wasn't joking. So she's passed out on the table. The doctors are cutting her open. Everything's there for me to see. And I'm holding her hand, just waiting for her to go, freedom! It was that crazy. They handed me my son, and he's doing the thing where she's passed out, and he's adjusting to the lights. And this is totally true. I am not making this up. My face was the first thing my son saw, and he looked at me and went. (laughs) And I was like, he's mine, that's for sure. He's got the Lowry eyebrow and everything. And then my wife eventually woke up and held him, and in like three months, she was like, let's have another baby. And I was like, really? Really? square. (laughs) But what was it that made her 
look at that suffering that she went through that way. It was the result, the joy of the child that made all of it worth it. That there's something in us that says the greatest kinds of suffering that you can go through can result in even greater joys. And every mother that's ever had a second child has understood that and chosen willingly into that. And that's exactly what God is telling us here is that these pains and these trials begat joy. And if you understand that well enough, then you can access that joy at the beginning of the trial. And that is what we should do because that will give us the strength that we need, the endurance and the faith to reap all of the joy that can be had. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Or, that is terrible, as difficult, or as painful as this life can be, and maybe your life has been all pain and all suffering, and you're sitting there saying, this is just not true. God is promising you eternity is worth it. That there is an an, incomparable, beautiful eternity where there is no pain, there is no suffering, and there is relationship, and there is joy, and there is victory over evil. And that whatever suffering we face in this life is worth it because of that alone. In Revelation 21.4, It says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This is where the Bible ends and eternity begins. The moment where we come into the arms of a loving father who grabs a hold of us and says, well done, good and faithful servant, Welcome home, my son and my daughter. And we burst into tears because of how ugly this life was. And he wipes those tears away and says, No more! No more! Your life from this point forward is safe, it is secure, it is good, it is whole, and it's together. But we have to come to the end of ourselves. And we have to admit, I'm hurting and I'm angry and I'm a part of the problem. And I need you, Jesus Christ, to come into my life and to begin to heal me from all the brokenness that I know is inside. 
And that's the great promise that we all have. And the hope that makes us capable of enduring any trial. If we will believe and trust. If we will reckon those trials as opportunities. Knowing that it will produce endurance. Be willing to ask God to show us the fullness of what we can gain and believe in His goodness to know that He will keep His promises. There you have James chapter 1. God, we just pray for those who are in the midst of this. We ask that uh, they would turn to You and find that you are our shelter, you are our comforter, you are our rock, and that they would find strength in you to endure and to move forward. And for those of us who are not suffering greatly in the present, we just ask for the ability to recall and remember these truths in that time, and that we could grow And that we could be a people who have a lot of heart, who are eager for challenges and eager for opportunities that will teach us to trust you more. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.